All right, so welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 52. This is Noah Lyons here, as always, joined by Henry Woods. And since Henry put this beautiful uh, idea together for the podcast, I will let him introduce our uh, lovely guest. <laughs> um, so our guest is a longtime friend, mentor, and motivator for myself. She's a redeeming uh, professor at Howard University, and she's also a phenomenal attorney here in Washington, D.C. Her name is Angela Minor. Um, she'll be joining us. Uh, so Professor Minor, you can kind of introduce yourself, give us a little background about you if you choose to, and then we can figure out how to get into all of this. All right, greetings and salutations. Even in this tumultuous time, I'm Professor Angela Minor. Uh, just glad to be here when I'm not teaching at Howard University. I am practicing law in the DMV. I love what I do. I come from a family-owned small law firm. It was just my mother and I till she passed for cancer. Been teaching uh, at Howard for 10 years. Um, I love the law, love what I do. I'm a geek about mine. Um, so I love discussing certain platforms, particularly when it has to deal with justice and injustice. So I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, uh, Noah, you know, you, you want this to go a certain way. So I'm gonna let you lead and not follow. <laughs> Funny. Um, so I think the first question, uh, for us, Professor Minor, is what, uh, just what has stood out to you most during um, this protest? I think a lot of people, uh, myself and Henry included, I think we're still kind of struggling how to feel and what is the right kind of path of action, which I know we'll talk about later, but um, just about this whole protest and um, just what has stood out to you the most um, from just this past couple of days, especially uh, this weekend. Very good question. And I have to say that what has stood out to me the most is that this just didn't stop and end in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's in New York. It's in Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, LA. I, I am not worried so much about the looting. I am worried that our people, Black people, Black men, Black women are getting shot, still getting hurt. I am concerned about that. But we, we are no stranger to protesting and protesting in this manner. But what stood out to me the most is that the nation is crying out and hurt. The nation is like, we're not gonna stand for this. The nation doesn't wanna see one more black man in the middle of the street being pinned down and dying. Just, that's it, period. You know, it's, it's no other way to explain it. We do not want these disasters happening. We don't want to see another video of a black man jogging and you getting shot. We don't want to see another video of a chokehold of a, of a black woman. We just don't, we're tired. And that to me, that stands out the most. Um, I am not impressed by our counterparts, although I appreciate the support. I appreciate the support from all races. I appreciate the support from all groups, from businesses. Everybody can stand to say something now. But what stands out is Black America, Black people are on the line. And we are the ones that are saying, we're going to protest. You're going to hear us. 
not just see us, but you are going to hear us in this. And it's still going on, Noah and Henry. It's still going on. And I think it's going to continue to go on until the other police officers are at least indicted or charged. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you um, <clears throat> say that that was like what you noticed, like a lot of a lot more people are noticing, like I've seen videos in the UK and Tokyo. So like it's been a worldwide thing at this point. So it's like the response this time is like, okay, like we literally seen the man like stand like his neck, like his neck, like bruh. So to me, it's um like it to me personally, I, I can agree that it's it, it it has been like in one way it's cool that other people are now opening their eyes. Like when I seen on the view that like Megan McCain, she was like, oh no, nah, like this is wrong. I was like, okay, maybe it is getting across. Like maybe right. it is getting across. Right, right. I think, um, it is, I think it's in an undeniable stance. Mm-hmm. It's an yeah. undeniable posture. And people are like, whoa, okay, we can't even play this off anymore. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if low key, even if we did support it, we didn't care about it. We can't right now because people are watching, right? Reading, mm-hmm. and it, I hate that it takes. I mean, because although it is George Floyd, there's there are countless others that have gone through this, that are dealing with this, and there weren't charges, there weren't trials, and if there was a trial, or excuse me, if there was a charge or a trial, there was no conviction. And so, you know, even if we take it back, fellas, to 92, which I'm pretty sure the two of you probably weren't even born, but I digress. But (laughs) (laughs) even if we take it back to 92, I'm going to throw it out there. Rodney King. Okay. So, yeah, Will Smith said, you know, racism is not old. It's just just being televised. Rodney King, the reason we know about him and this name has made history, unfortunately, is because he was beat by LA cops, I mean, at least five or six of them beating him and somebody had to film that to be seen. So even in that conviction or that trial, there was no conviction. Mm, speak so I, I'll, I'll digress here. I'll wait for the next question, fellas. But, I want to talk on so, like one second, cause you said earlier, you didn't have a problem with the looting or whatever. And like, I have seen a lot, like, in my personal, like, family group chat, I've went back and forth with some people about, like, it, it, one, I personally feel like if you think about a Tea Party and the Stonewall rise up until, like, Rodney King, um, these progressive movements, they started with rioting and the lording and all of that stuff, however, but a lot of people... Um, especially like black people that I've seen. I've seen this woman in Atlanta, like literally crying, saying, oh my God, the Gucci store, y'all didn't have to do that. But like, oh my gosh, that might've been some other stuff, but like the overall, (laughs) like the CNN happening or the Target and all that stuff, like. Don't get me wrong, Henry. I, I don't, I don't want looting to be the focus Mm -hmm. of the question or how I answer the question. It's not that I don't see anything wrong with it. There's plenty wrong with looting. I mean, CNN, I mean, I could definitely say. I, I, I was more focused toward the fact of like, I get like. Our community. My question is, is this needed in order to get the organizers, get the lawmakers, get the legislators, get the people that we need who have not in these past couple of years, like you said, dated back to 92. Um, 
they have they just kind of just let the ball drop and there's nothing being done on a federal level i think it does have a place i'm not going to say that it's needed it's not needed i mean uh-huh. come on now dr martin luther king they protested in a very civil nonviolent manner or at least they try to but i think with where we are in the state of black america we're enraged and we're livid and i think that's the source and the passion behind looting I mean, of, sh- of course, somebody's going to see an opportunity to get some free items, TV, whatever. Um, definitely don't want to blame Target. Don't want to bash our communities. I don't want to see our communities suffer any more than what they already are. Right. I don't, I don't want to say that. So I'm not saying that looting is, is not important. It's just inevitable. If okay. you're going to bring this much hatred, this much death, to the black community, we are going to be enraged and we don't know any other way to release that pent up anger and frustration than unfortunately to burn police cops that actually were most recently burned in where I'm from, Richmond, Virginia. I mean, statues. Uh, I think that um, Philadelphia. Yeah, I've seen that Philadelphia. Yeah, the Rizzo statue. So mm-hmm. I'm, not, you know, I'm not calling any of that out. But I think the passion and the behavior behind it is what is, is critical to focus on. I don't want, I just don't particularly care for the headlines that are like, oh, Target, da 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 destroyed. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it should not be the entire focus of what's really going on. And I think that was my point. Yeah, I can, I can understand that because I think that's, I think, interestingly, one of the, and just kind of reading the news coverage and seeing a lot of, mayors especially black mayors kind of speak on it um yeah. i've kind of had issue with it because i think they haven't um they haven't been able to strike the balance by saying you know i i don't really approve of the looting or of people going in stores and taking stuff but this comes from a frustration that is genuine and that hasn't been acknowledged for that's centuries and i think that's the yeah, part yeah. where i think a lot of politicians have failed is that they're just casting the looting as if it's separate from the action itself when in fact it's actually one in the same and where if you keep telling people that hey we're going to try to work on this and it never happens this is the only way that people feel that they can actually get their voices heard and their frustrations out and someone in Minneapolis said that you know if we actually handle this the right way none of this would happen so we have to look inward before we just say you know, this is this like the victim blaming. That's all out. Like that's that was my point. It seemed like a lot of media and people are doing victim blaming. Yeah, and speaking of handling it the right way, how do you handle it the right way? Because when you go to the justice system and they change the charges, or you convict, you go through a trial, and then there is no actual verdict that mm-hmm. actually convicts, and you you have all the proof in the world. And now the blame game is shifting to the health of George Floyd and all of his underlying issues and treatments. So Mm -hmm. you want to focus on that. It's what is so, what is so crazy and at the same time just rewarding to me about black people is we, we're resilient Mm -hmm. and, and we suffer through so much, but yet we don't go in packs and droves to white communities shooting them and shooting their people and shooting whoever we could kill. We're right here in our neighborhoods expressing how we're feeling or we're going to march. And even if the march began peaceful and ended up in looting 
or some type of violent manner, they somehow find a way to shift the blame back to us as if to them it's always this perpetual, uh, how do I say it, persona that Black people are violent. And so therefore, what the problem is, is inherently lies within us. When we're saying, you still kill us, you still beat us, you still take advantage, you still treat us like propaganda and property, but yet, you know, we still don't choose to harm you first. We still choose to protest. We still choose to go the right route. I mean, I think this is going to birth a new generation of policy change makers. Mm. I think when you talk about Trayvon, excuse me, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you can go ahead because I I was just going to say that's a great pivot to the next question. Okay. Um, But you can go ahead. When you look at Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, who's ran for office, Mike Mm. Brown's mother, they're running locally. They're not just standing and not just mourning. They're, they said, let me pull my sleeves up because mm-hmm. I see a problem or I at least see where I can make a change. Mm-hmm. Let that spread. Let that spread like fire. We want to talk about fire. Let that spread like fire. And unfortunately, I don't know how long it will take, but that's what, that's the new birth movement. That's the birthing movement that I'm seeing coming out of this. Yeah, I mean, and that's, um, it's funny that you mentioned Sabrina Fulton, who's running for commissioner in Dade County. That's actually the same with um, Jordan Davis's son. I mean, mother of Lucy McBath, who's a congresswoman in Georgia's 6th District in north north of Atlanta. But it is funny that you mentioned that, um, just kind of how change works. Uh, As Henry mentioned, that kind of segues into what you were saying about our next question. Um, You know, and Henry actually brilliantly came up with this question that, you know, since the justice system has an extensive history of being unfair um, to Black people in this country, as someone in the legal profession, how do you try to be that change exactly? Or how do you try to combat that mistreatment that is, you know, that's rampant in the system? How do you try to be that change agent in a system that overwhelmingly tries to work against us? Now, that's, that's an extremely hard question. When I looked at the question, I said, oh, my gosh and I'm hearing you ask this question, it's so very hard because racism is it's just inherently drenched in our judicial system. Mm. And day to day, I will see it, whether it's a small gesture, whether it's even the end of a ruling from one of my cases, whether it's um, a jury uh, that I believe that has been mantled together unfairly. And I think mm-hmm. I might have, just to like give you an example, I was in class and I was teaching mock trial class and I had this case. It was two lawyers that I was defending and it was about 200 and some thousand dollars at issue with a, a moving trailer. And just to tell you this story real quick of what goes on day to day, white judge gets on the bench and he says, why don't we just take the first 12 jurors and let that convene the jury? Well, guys, the first 12 juries, jurors were all Caucasian. Because, you know, when we gather together, for some reason, we never go to the front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I looked, I looked, I turned around, and I'm like, oh, my God. 
all my brothers and sisters were in the back. So here I am, you know, defense counsel, defense team is three white lawyers. Their clients were white. It's my mother and I, I'm black. My clients are black. I'm like, oh no lawyer. Um, Oh no judge, judge, I can't, I can't do this. You know, this is infringing on our constitutional right to convene a jury. And he's like, oh my gosh, counselor, come to the bench. So you know how they do that? kind of embarrassing thing where they, it's like reporting to the principal's office. They summons you, yeah. Yeah, so they summons us to the bench, they play the white noise, and he's like, what's the problem? I said, I just told you the problem. I want our, I want our right, our constitutional right to convene a jury. So he had no choice but to adhere to that. So long story short, we end up having six members, no, seven black persons on that jury. One I will never forget. This brother had glasses. He had sweatpants on. He was a certified, he was a CPA, <laughs> 10 years in the game. And I'm like, oh my gosh, one person was a teacher. One was a professor. One was a law student. When I look mm-hmm. at the jury that we end up you know, composing and making, I have to believe that if I did not, and don't get me wrong, I was scared as a hooker in church because I knew the reputation <laughs> of this respective judge. And I, right. you know, I'm not going to tell you what county I was in, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, a, it wasn't Prince George's County where like 95% yeah. of us are African-American. You better talk about that. And here, we're going to go talk about we home. Girl, shut up, Keisha. Anyway. So it was, I think it's holding people accountable to answer your question directly in a way that you know that brings out the best equality in that respective moment so that you can so that you can have justice. Also, it's never, if I can answer it this way, once you get out there in whatever profession that you do, go to meetings, go to support groups, go to organizations, go to see what your council or congresswoman is doing. You can be a lobbyist without officially holding the job. Come on, somebody, all you have to do is have a mind and think. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you can support those groups, but I think, as a lawyer, I think it's also pushing laws and policies. The Maryland uh, Prince George's Bar Association. We are very extremely active, and I'm not trying to put a plug, but it's an example to your question. Mm-hmm. We're active right now in mandatory minimum sentencing because it changed for Maryland. Right. And so, you know, that's a disproportionate, disproportionate impact on African-American men and women. Right. And so mm-hmm. we, we started planting people on the floor in the Maryland Congress. Mm. And then we started planting people. We started going there. We even have our own committee, and that committee has a background, and we keep on pushing it until we're heard, until it's made, I mean, in written form, until it is law. I like how you keep pushing the agenda, but I want to kind of like talk about this a second, because that pivots directly to our next question yeah. about roles. But speaking of that and how like you yourself and like the your peers and like coworkers and people that work in your field have like did certain things, how do you like how do we as like a regular citizen right like i know you and i know a few other lawyers and i know people who are actively trying to fight this like uphill battle right but how do us as regular citizens one become aware of that because that's what i think the biggest thing 
my generation, or I can speak for myself alone, um, feels to where like, it's not publicized or we don't really know. It's all like, it's a hashtag on Twitter. We see about it. We'll talk about it. People protest. And then, you know, that's it. Like, we'll see another situation where the cop is on video or a, a non-black person is on video killing us for not other, no other reason besides being black or cases where it's not even on video or, like you said, where it's like just municipal BS dealing with the dailies of, like, racism and oppression to where, like, how, how, how is that, I guess, like, because I've always felt like since, like, the Malcolm X and the Martin Luther King that everybody loves to reference, the ball has dropped. That, like, Black leaders just, like, left us all abandoned. And that's why I feel like all of this stuff kind of goes in vain sometimes because, like, we don't see what's happening behind the scenes in a legislative office because all we see is Trump on Twitter saying those thugs or... You know what I'm saying? Our policymakers like Biden, who's the Democratic, you know what I'm saying, pick, who is basically kind of defending certain, like, institutions that oppress us. So how do we bring awareness or even become aware of these things? I think first you have to reach out on a local level. You have to reach out on a local level first before you can get to a federal level. So what does that mean? You have to be the type of citizen that actually is going to attend a town hall meeting in your county Mm. and if you can't and if there are no town hall meetings in your county you write to the respective person and generally it's always somebody like the field coordinator or someone that does social events and you start writing to your local city council start attending town hall meetings change the focus to what's really important instead of everybody has immediate needs. Everybody has to fix potholes. Everybody wants a garden who lives in the city, et cetera. And everybody wants more space who lives in in the suburbs. So fine. Once you get through that, put the pressure on them and you put the pressure on them by being organized and by being addressed. I think also you have to realize that there are several, not committee meetings, but there are some parts of, I would say, procreating and creating laws that citizens can be a part of. And you just have to figure out what meetings you can be a part of, um, who you can talk to. I would say collectively come together uh, with whoever has the same common goal and interest that you have Mm-hmm. I think that more African-American men, young men, such as yourselves, I think you should form a group, whether it's a lobbyist group where you are particularly latching on to one law first. Just focus on one law you would like to see change and start writing. And once you start writing, you'll begin to be known Start asking for meetings on a local level. Then go to your congresswoman. You don't, I mean, I think that it's great that we have these organizations. I think Mm -hmm. it's great that we have lobbyists, but I don't think we have enough that are out there effectuating this change. If you have a story, if you know someone who has a story, ask to be heard on the floor and start pushing them and holding them accountable. Also, I definitely think that it all depends on how we vote and how we represent ourselves. 
because we're only going to move and push things if you know you have the representative or the representative seats in Congress. Amen. But um, I do think that, let me just end with this. I have to reiterate it with this respective question is I think we do have to come together more and become policymakers. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they're not going to do that for us. Mm-hmm. Become your own policymakers. You can do that without being an elected public figure. But I, I think it's time to move. I think mm-hmm. it's time to move in a different manner, in a different way. So is that like a, uh, I don't, it's a word I was thinking of, but like, no, I think she just kind of challenged us to do something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's funny because I was just, as you were saying that in terms of becoming policymakers and change agents, kind of the, and especially <laughs> voting, because I know Henry and I have tried to focus on that leading up to the election. I know like the one thing that I would have liked to see, I don't know if like the DNC could do this or there's some organization that if there's ever a rally, there needs to be someone out there either handing out like voting registration stuff or voting information because that, especially in Minneapolis, that is the next piece because the county attorney, that's an elected position. You know, the mayor, that's an elected position. The city council person, that's an elected position. So I think that hits on a really good note. And I think you are really trying to piggyback off our, off our questions, like Henry said. Um, we all have different roles in this, you know, I think in this lifelong movement that we all have as black people in terms of achieving justice, I think kind of one of my bigger frustrations, I know Henry and I have kind of been going back and forth with people on Twitter about people not understanding that not everyone can have the same movement or have the same role in terms of being the, being the thought piece thinker or being the other person of the one to offer the words. I think that people have different roles in this movement to achieve justice, depending on where you are economically, educationally or just in general so what do you as a lawyer in general what do you kind of what role do you think you play in the system because a lot of this a lot of these battles are fought in the court so I think that you probably have a different perspective but what role do you think you play in this never-ending fight of achieving justice oh trust and believe I'm I am training kings and queens you better believe it you better believe it adjust your crowns get ready i am training at least i pray that i am doing this job as i teach as i bring you and talk about the courtroom i'm telling you literally the sky is the limit but i when i work with the howard university mock trial team when i coach the howard university speech and debate team we talk about black issues I am training individuals, young people, to think critically about things that are directly impacting us in a negative way and how you can proliferate, how you can make that change, how you can just jump in and make a change. I actually put it in group me today when I found out that Howard University, uh, a Howard University rising sophomore died a couple days ago yeah Yeah, in california and i said let me just drop this word of life right now law school is one way to get there but you guys are journalists you guys are politicians you guys are judges you guys are city councilmen and women don't forget that once you get the practice of law under your belt go out and effectuate change Go out and do that. 
even the people who are not as educated are you still have a voice. So it's not always about your education. It's about what you can do. And we need more of a presence on a push to make even, you know, I think it was, I think it's HR, what is it, 4480? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, we did it. That's on the back of our shirt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, guys, who who made that law? Black people. Amen. Black people you. did that. Nobody else is going to do what we have to do. Nobody else is going to tell us how to change us or how to stop killing us but us. So that's that's what I do. That's what I believe I do. That's what I hope I do. I try to teach uplift and encourage and strengthen that your words matter they're going to follow you to the rest of your days that even when you leave this earth we have your words so what words are you going to leave mm-hmm. what legacy in the amount of change in words what words are going to be attached to no alliance what words are going to be attached to henry woods is it just going to be period on poo? You know, I mean, no. <laughs> you know, I, lo- I love to laugh. I don't want, because I could really get passionate. I've already cried enough this weekend. But, but I let's just. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about I it. I just really want you guys to know that you're matriculating through Howard University. And right now, we have at least about 60 to almost a hundred politicians that Howard University has produced. And when I mean politicians, I'm not talking about everybody that's in Congress. I'm talking about NAACP. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about NCLC. I mean, ACLU. We are there. Even if you are working for the federal government as a policy analyst, you are making change. Mm -hmm. This is true. This is true. And so I, I think that... As we look at that, I think that's the biggest charge. That's the biggest element. And I want to like kind of talk about something without talking about it. But when we address like Howard specifically and the people they push out into the world and like mm-hmm. play these roles per se, right? Um, there was a Howard person who was very popular in the media during these presidential elections. Um, and I, I personally think like a lot of people gave her slack because they, like you said in the beginning, lack the critical thinking to look at a holistic picture of playing your part in the system. And I know you're a defense attorney, but are you capable or able to speak toward that fact of to the person I'm alluding to? Uh, I don't know if I want to name drop or speak to that any respective person. And go from there. Okay, I can respect that. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, no, we'll go ahead. Then. <laughs> um, I think. No, I try. I, I had to try. I had to try. Right. You threw your foot out there. I think um, one thing um, that Henry and I have kind of been talking about. And we had a lengthy conversation about this offline. Is that a lot of this? Um, a lot of things about the Floyd case and just about everything that's been going on will happen in the courtroom, which very few of us have the privy and the education of understanding kind of the ins and outs um, of actually what go down in the courtroom. So I think what kind of my focus was is that, is there any precedent of 
or is there anything kind of from a legal perspective that we can or that you can look to that says, hey, the defense or that the prosecution can rest on this or is this kind of just or is police misconduct just such a wild card that it just kind of depends on every situation or is there any way you can kind of take us inside of the courtroom to kind of like understand what the prosecution is kind of thinking? Because I think that's something that Henry and I are not lawyers by training or education or any of that. So that's something that we just don't know. But don't do that. I'm apparently no, excuse me, excuse me. Well, you can answer my direct question in <laughs> way. Um, we just, a lot of people just don't know what's going to go down in the courtroom. So I think is there any kind of insight that or any perspective as a lawyer that you can kind of add of this is kind of what the prosecution is thinking or just kind of anything on that would be helpful because I think that's something that the media does not necessarily talk about enough considering that that's where the bulk of this will happen. Right. I think that, gosh, you guys have some excellent questions. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> really do. And I think this is where I have to answer it broad and then I will come in and answer it to in a pinpointed manner. Okay. So when we go and we think about this trial actually going to a courtroom, this is why we have to come out and be change agents. Because now we're going to have to focus on the judge, the jury. We're going to have to focus on who's the prosecutor and who will be prosecuting. We're going to have to focus on all of these entities. Now we're going to have to focus on how the law is written. Because when we look at how the law is written, that is what that prosecutor is bound to. Right. So that prosecutor is bound to, but let's back up. It's the prosecutor that comes up with the charges. Mm. So if the charges don't speak about the charges. You don't, oh, I'm going to talk about it. You <laughs> don't have a conviction. Right. So let's talk about, let me talk, let me give you an example. Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray, his case, his trial comes into play. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I believe Freddie Gray died on the public street in Baltimore. I believe that he was dead or severely injured before he was lifted, excuse me, dragged to the van, the wagon, whatever you call it. I believe it happened on the street. However, when we got to the trial, to the conviction, and I'm grateful that we had a state's attorney, a black prosecutor that, mm -hmm. that understood a trial had to go and they should be held accountable, but somewhere, something seeped in there, or someone put it in their mind, or someone had the authority to say, maybe the charges should not be on what the officers did on the public street when they arrested him. Maybe it's how they drove him to the police precinct. Maybe, maybe that's where he injured himself. So once they change the charges, they found, or the prosecutor quickly found that there was no evidence that they drove in such a manner that caused his death in transporting Freddie Gray. So they overlooked 
all of the illegal activity that happened on the street. Mm. So therefore, in short, there's no conviction. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward to Floyd. Here we have the difference of manslaughter and third degree murder. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's also look at, at murder holistically. Of course you have first degree murder. That's premeditated murder. It's planned. There is a plan. We figured it out. It's done. Let's go carry that plan out of killing or murdering someone. That's first degree murder. Then we have second degree murder, depraved heart murder. That's the type of murder that the passions are so high with the individual that they come to a point that they are insane or temporarily having a mental breakdown that they end up killing someone. So that's a crime of passion. That means husband, just a quick example, walks into the bedroom, finding wife in an adulterous relationship, and in the heat of passion, kills everybody in sight, okay? You didn't know that that was gonna happen. You didn't have a gun. You just picked up the gun on the nightstand and commenced to killing. You know, so that's, that's a crime of passion. It wasn't necessarily planned. Now. Mm -hmm. Third degree murder. Third degree murder says there has to be some egregious act of negligence. And it kind of removes this whole element of intent. Mm. So it says, you misjudge the situation. It was such a gross misjudgment that it infringed immediate bodily harm that could have caused death. Mm -hmm. So you had so much bodily harm that it could have caused death. Or manslaughter. Manslaughter says, I may be driving in such a reckless manner that I know at the speed limit is 45, but I'm going 95 and I had two drinks. I might have just hit someone. I know that my actions are so severe that it can cause the death of someone. But they had chosen, so as a lawyer, I'm looking at the fact, and, and you're asking me to take you into the courtroom, I'm looking at the fact that they're already setting this up for a non-conviction. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a coroner who also works for the state, who comes back and tells people of America, citizens, American citizens, that the death yeah. <laughs> and he's always a primary given witness mm -hmm. that this death had nothing to do with a pinhole, a chokehold, or a knee on his neck mm -hmm. for eight to nine minutes. Mm -hmm. It had everything to do with his underlying conditions. Mm -hmm. Not that, but for the knee on his neck, his underlying conditions were exacerbated. Right, exactly. So now you have been alleviated you can walk around third degree murder. In my opinion and in the, my little world, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if a police officer intends to do a chokehold or intends to put a knee on someone's neck, then you have the intent to possibly kill someone. Man. Because you knew, you knew by Eric Garner, you knew that that particular pose or restriction yeah. <laughs> you knew it was outlawed you knew it causes death 
You knew it could injure. You knew it could paralyze somebody. There are, there are schools of thoughts that Freddie Gray was paralyzed, being transmitted to the actual van where they said caused his death. <sighs> I think not taking Freddie Gray straight to the hospital caused his death. Right. I think almost nine minutes of a knee on somebody's neck who calls out for his mother and who says, tell my daughter I love her because I believe, unfortunately, George Floyd, he knew that he was going to die. Mm. I think that, I think that is where the intent should be. So, so yes, I think that's where we should dispatch people to create new Senate laws on any form or any use of protective force. Mm -hmm. And then also lay out a plan that says, you need to be removed immediately. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a background check. That means you get no pension, no 401, no 40K, nothing. And you can never ever carry a gun you can't even mm. work in any form of law enforcement again that means security with mm. the gun nothing mm -hmm. i think we need to have that focus i think there also needs to be some implementation that focuses on police brutality and they have to begin doing background checks for them too i have to do a background check for my job or how severe is the background check for every police officer in the United States? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it extensive enough to say or to find out that they may have ties to a hate group? Mm -hmm. And if they do, I don't care if your mama, your brother, or your great-granddaddy, and you may think you're separated from it, they need to be removed from becoming a police officer. Because that tells me you are biased. There's no way, shape, or form that in the heat of a moment and you have a gun, you'll choose to kill instead of dismantle someone mm -hmm. that looks black. You, you, just you, won't, you won't shoot him in the leg and let it be a thrash room. You'll, you'll kill him 90 sometimes. All right. <laughs> that's, that's talking about Mr. Bell. I mean, come on now. He was shot 90 sometimes. Mm -hmm. At what point were you in fear? Talk about it. So looking at stop and frisk, well, you know how long we've been arguing stop and frisk? Long time. <laughs> a long time. No, come on. Come on. A long time. Racial profiling. Mm. You know, we, we throw these terms out, but they're not terms of law. They're terms used in the law. Mm -hmm. But they carry no legal consequence. Right. And so when we come back and when we look at how they're going to argue that, I, I just, how does the prosecutor who may not be for African-American people <clears throat> who doesn't want to see a verdict, how are we know he's going to put 200% in this case? Mm-hmm. You work for the state. You can make a mockery of this trial <laughs> and then turn around and say, we did everything you asked for. <laughs> we convicted them. I'm sorry, we charged them. 
We brought them up. We fired them. What more do you want? Yeah. We, we, we had a whole trial. What more do you want? Mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin's case. Self-defense. Can we talk about it? Because I'm a total and complete bar. The judge ended her last sentence on the record is that you are a free man. You no longer have any business with this court. He was acquitted. So it's systemic racism. The Bible says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual wickedness in high places. That's that's systemic racism. She went to Divinity School too, y'all. Just hey, hey now. Um, that's that's systemic racism. It's not going to end today, but I think right now we put a wreck in it. We put a dent in it. We we let that baby on fire. It's lit. I I do believe yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, Professor Martin, my I think our final question. I think you've talked. I think for Henry and I, what we've noticed is that a lot of it is uh, a lot of your feelings is be that change agent, write the policy be that person in the courtroom, do that work. Um, I think what one thing that struck me that I found particularly interesting was that the, and I'm sure you know this more than anyone, that the criminal justice system, it deals, it's, it's problems root in a bunch of different problems. It's a legislative problem. It's a legal problem. And I think what struck me most was that this is a societal problem. And I think how do you, what are the type of ways in which, you know, legislative reform and changes can fix something that's just societal because I think someone could say that you know the the you can elect a new mayor and they can hire a new police chief and the police chief can enact all these new reforms will that stop a white cop from looking at Henry and I two black men and from assuming the worst how do you is there a way to try to change society through law or is it just we have to accept it as a slow burn and that it'll bend over time, but most people don't want to hear that when it involves their life. I don't know if that question makes sense, but is there any kind no, of way totally that makes sense? I think I think it it it's a it's going to be a marriage of society and criminal justice reform. It's going to be, you know, how they say it takes a village to raise a child. It's going to take a village of entities. When we look at where we are, I think it's going to take a community of black people coming together within small clusters of your community. And I think that's a society uh, a piece. I think we have to begin caring about what's going on and what's happening. I think, um, you know, even if it means we have our own neighborhood watches or, mm-hmm. or we begin to surveillance cameras. I mean, you've got to understand some of this with, with Floyd, with the Floyd matter, it wasn't just the video that this young lady who's now received so many death threats and is um, having going through a series of anxiety uh, matters, but, but it was her video camera. But when we look at the angle, her video camera only showed the, the knee to the neck. Mm-hmm. It was a surveillance video camera that was from a convenience store or across the street that gave them the angle of the other two police officers on his body. <clears throat> And so I think, you know, Noah, the best way that I can answer this question is 
we do have to come together and start sticking together, start looking out for one another, um, knowing that it's going to take the person that owns the corner store to care. Mm. And if you, if you are Asian, Indian, whoever, you need to begin caring about black people on your corner store. Amen. Because that's who supports you. That's who keeps your business running. And it's like, you, you gotta be held accountable too. And I, the one thing, I guess, the one thing I can say that I was surprised that we are seeing a huge number of, I would say minorities or just a nice diverse group of protesters. Um, So I think people are coming together. Even celebrities are coming together. That's fine. We are dealing with a lot of, I, I would say, I think it's I, I about that too, because, huh? Yeah, there are a lot of radical groups and I think a radical group, two white, two, actually it was two white women, all black, um, but kind of like all black gear were actually caught uh, dismantling and defacing a Starbucks. And after they do it, they will put BLM, Black Lives Matter, under it. about it, though. And so I, I'll talk a little bit about the Antifa uh, groups, but they're out there. And so you've got those groups out there in protesting. So I'm like, you know, that, that's wickedness. That's just, that's yeah. just pure evil. We're fighting to just stay alive, and you have time to pay people? Look. Huh. To pay people in that respective local area to put to spray paint BLM on the side of a business, and it's um, it's interesting. Bricks have been left on corner streets in front of stores. I mean, who, who's putting bricks out? But that, that's my thing, and that's why I guess I wanted to not focus, but ask you about the Lord and all that. Because honest to God, just my hands to God, all the videos I've seen will come out with like. Blacks, the blacks, not people of color, not others, blacks that I have personally seen in the videos, they'll have signs and they'll be masked up and whatever. But like, I literally seen this video of a white girl kicking in this store window and a black grabbing her saying like, we're not here to do that. Like, you're hurting in the streets. And then somebody had to explain like, if we get locked up, we ain't they coming out. It's on us for one. Right. Two, we don't have the uh, you know resources to get out of jail. So if you are going to be out here in the name of Black Lives Matter, at least join the movement and know what we're here for. And that's my problem with it because again, a lot of people want to say it's us looting or whatever. Yeah, the stuff in Beverly Hills in Atlanta that was some ghetto stuff by black you know, black people sometimes. But overall, like people have been organized. People have been. Uh, peaceful people have been like you know coming out with signs versus like corporate protests. They had AK 57s and stuff. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Point is like the media and the masses continues to push it as if blacks are going out to cause havoc when honestly we just want our voice to be heard. Right. Right. I, I don't know. No, I hope I answered your question. It's no, you did. A, you did. It's That's such an important question, but it's hard to answer because even there are so many intimidating tactics um, 
just even given to people who own businesses and stores. It's, we are, I mean, even when you look at racial demographics and how ownership is owned and how they can literally move people out of certain areas. I mean, there's, there's racism in so many, it, it has morphed into almost every area of our life. Sure. And so it's, it's morphed into certain housing terms. It's morphed into, you know, buying a car. We, we are dealing with racism on an everyday basis and on a scale that, that it could be so overwhelming. And so, yes, part of it is going to be a slow burn, but, but I think we're getting there. I think that, that they're understanding that it's undeniable. I think that also they know how to get around it, but so do we. I don't think there's anything that we can't come to grips with. We can't come to an um, to a place where we can win, where we can figure it out, and whether we can do it collectively. Mm. That's that's a word. Uh, I know that's all the questions in the docs. I'll defer to Henry. Henry, you got any you got anything else you want to ask? I know you probably got a thousand thoughts because you know we've been, thoughts, we've been having sermons dropped every five minutes. <laughs> No, nah, it's just like one is it is to me personally, it's empowering to again hear Professor Minor speak about this stuff because one, she is a lawyer, and then two, like she was a person that influenced me uh, a lot. So with that and like having these views, it, it just like kind of hits home to like me saying one, I have to step up and do more. Um, two, I have to like encourage other people to do more. Uh, so it just like you know what I'm saying. It, it it's kind of empowering to hear mm -hmm. her have that hope because honestly, like if I could just kind of like be on my soapbox, like I was off social media for and you had you had to be. It was like, a rough week. No, yeah. it was a yeah, it was a rough, rough month. Week. You know, like, yeah. it's been rough. So I've been on social media and like I physically don't like shed tears very often unless it like like punches me like I'll weep and whatever but like like even since I was little like my mom would like pitch me harder a little bit to be like boy you okay mm -hmm. um, but like my point is like I got on social media and started just assessing and observing everything and like tears like just started falling and I was just so much into like confusion almost to like I didn't know what I was mad at I'm kind of mad at like one, black people wanting to victim blame other black people having raised. Two, the system within itself. Three, the continuous actions that go on. So it's just a lot. Um, so I appreciate like the hope that's given within this conversation. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I really just love what you guys are doing. And I'm not just saying that. I really do. You, you guys have to continue this platform. If you don't, and you're not already doing it, I would encourage you to mentor. Uh, well, definitely when it comes to society helping out Noah and Henry, you have an image of, black, of the black man within yourselves that you can literally change. They, of course, are gonna try to find any and everything wrong with George Floyd. Uh, they're gonna try to figure out what his past looks like. I mean, we, we all do that in, in a court of law, but we know that it, it pales nothing in comparison to the horrible death that he had to go through and that everybody's gonna witness and see, including his loved ones and even his daughters one day. 
But I think that if you two could reach out, I don't care where you go, inner city, city, suburbs, start small. I hope you're doing it now, but they need to see, because we will never have enough of strong, positive Black images of men, of Black men or the strong, right or correct image. They've got to do it one by one, keep mentors going, even if it's mm-hmm. under this, this site, keep telling the truth, keep, keep getting your word out there and help some young Black boy find their way out of what seemingly be, seems to be impossible. Amen. Mm. And I think that just speaks volumes, man. Because who? Yes. Well, I think, uh, Professor Mott, I think from the bottom of our heart, Henry and I, we truly appreciate you coming on. I think I'll probably speak for both of us and say that this was probably one of our favorite episodes that we have ever done. Um, <laughs> and I think that we, we both thank you for coming on and talking, both inspiring us, challenging us, um, and all of that. So we we truly appreciate all of that. Oh, you're more than welcome. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was mine. I love what you guys are doing, so keep up the good work. I'm a fan. So yeah, all right. All right, thank you so much, Professor Reiner. No problem, guys. Stay safe, love ya. All right, you too.